I'm not enjoying my food, then but we have to eat to live. So though my mindset is I want to enjoy what I'm eating, but my mindset has always been like focus in on enjoyment as well as the knowledge. And welcome to 8020 Endurance. Excellent advice there from Lydia Nader, uh, registered dietitian, the official dietitian for the Endeavor Run camp that I was at recently. I am Matt Fitzgerald. And I'm Hannah Hunstead. We're delighted to bring Lydia's voice to the airwaves for you to learn from and also just, I don't know, to get to know a little bit. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more from this young lady in the future. She's a, a rising star in the endurance nutrition space for sure. Yes. We've had Georgie Fear on the show, so I don't think this will be, it's not our first, I don't think it'll be our last nutritionist we have on as a guest. They're both really upfront, authentic, honest, black and white folk. And one thing that stood out to me was Lydia talking about this post that she did on Instagram, and I won't give away the kicker here, but she did a post about Gatorade and it caused a bit of an uproar, people being upset about how much sugar was in it, was she being paid by Gatorade, and her response really hit home with me and kind of made me think and in a way that I hadn't before about nutrition, so keep a keen ear for that. Yeah, that aspect of Lydia's delivery, shall we say, really resonated with me as well. She's clearly a pragmatist, like she knows her science, like she, you know, she's very knowledgeable, but she knows that her responsibility is to make a difference in the lives of individual human beings and that requires empathy being able to package the science and the guidelines in ways that actually work for people which which isn't easy and i value a lot it's the way i i try to coach people is is pragmatically as well we also talk about fueling for female athletes during throughout their cycles and different hormonal stages and even go over some of my blood work that I had done from Inside Tracker, our presenting sponsor. That was a super interesting segment of the show. And if you would like to get your blood work done by Inside Tracker, look how smooth this transition is here. <laughs> you can <laughs> you can go to the link in our bio and receive 25% off their entire store as a listener of our podcast. That, that was the best one I've done so far, I'd like to say. <laughs> <laughs> but enjoy this week's episode with Lydia, and like we said, not our first, not our last nutritionist. Lydia Nader, welcome to the 8020 Endurance Podcast, where it is 80% nailing your nutrition plan and 20% reaching for the gel that you did not pack. Welcome. Thank <laughs> you for having me. I'm so excited. Matt, did you, did you approve of that 80-20 <laughs> intro or no? I think that I, laugh was a disapproval. No, no. It was actually grudging approval because I didn't want to like it, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to figure out the laughs, but okay, I'll accept it. Anyway, Lydia, hello. <laughs> We're so happy to have you. We actually had a lot of listener questions that we'll get to throughout the show, but people are really excited to have a nutritionist on the show. So thank you for being here. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited about all these questions that are coming in. Yes, it's. Uh, I know you do it well because I've seen you do it. I've seen you in action. Looking forward to that as well. But first... I would like to start by telling my guests, like everyone so far we've had on this show, I 
have met personally or have some kind of established relationship with. That pattern will break, but you know, we're just getting off the ground here. You know, I've encountered a lot of people in my adventures that I really think are great and would be great podcast guests. Lydia, you and I met for the first time just like less than three weeks ago. It was at the Endeavor Run Camp in Boulder, Colorado. You and I connected through Jake Tuber, who has also been a guest on this podcast. <laughs> but I got to say, like, how the heck did you get mixed up with that guy? <laughs> that is the age-old question, I feel like, over the past month. So th we got connected through a fellow running uh, teammate when I was part of the Nike Windrunners all-female racing team here in Chicago. One of my teammates was in the same business group community as Jake in New York City, and he was just like starting this brainstorming idea. I'm not, I think you were already a part of it by that point of Endeavor Run and this really cool, like unique type of run retreat that didn't exist anywhere. And he put this call out to this business group to bounce off some ideas and things like that. And my teammate re reached out and she's a runner and was like, yeah, I'd love to hear your ideas and give you feedback. And they met and she's, he said, I need a dietitian for this idea that I have. And she's like, I know just the person for you. She's a runner. She's a dietitian. Here's her name. And the rest is history from there. Seems like it's very easy to get mixed up with Jake Tuber these days. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, he said great things about you. Also, Lydia, we could have done this podcast together. We're both in Chicago, so we definitely need to meet up. Your post this morning on Instagram, the smoothie place inspired me, so I need to go there and also maybe we can meet there one day. Uh, and Devil Run, can you tell us a bit more about what you did there at the camp and what you're hoping to do just as nutritionist and with runners or athletes in general? Yeah, so with Endeavor Run, it was really cool because I got to bring my nutrition expertise, but also beyond that, being a runner and a dietitian, I'm able to actually combine a lot of what the advice that I give is things that I've done myself, trialed myself, and so I was able to bring a lot of that knowledge and experience to Endeavor Run. So at Endeavor Run, I not only had a talk where we debunked a lot of myths um, about nutrition. Some of the common ones out there are like, sugar, is sugar bad for athletes or sugar is bad for athletes? And different myths like that. And then also we had the great opportunity to actually cook for all of these athletes for a few of the meals and plan out the menu for breakfasts and help them and guide them through how to fuel for lunches on the town in Boulder. So I had a really unique experience with that because I love to plan things and organize as Matt saw. And so I got to do it with my dietitian hat on, which makes makes me just like always excited because athletes get to tangibly learn how to fuel themselves with a lot of the stuff that I was able to provide over the weekend. I'm curious to know, you know, because it seems like you've, I mean, you're young still, but you've had an interest in both the running and the nutrition, like as far back as I can rewind on your resume. But which came first, the running or the nutrition interest? So the running actually came first. I was long, it's super long story, but long story short, I got involved with an organization called Girls on the Run, which a lot of people might be familiar with. And I was joining in a new school. I just transferred to a new school. And this organization came in and they're like, we're about running and you get to make friends and you learn some different positive affirmations, positive self-talk and lots of these lessons. And at the end, you get to run a 5K. 
Well, I loved running, and I also needed an opportunity to meet a lot of friends and break into a social area. And so uh, I joined Girls in the Run, and that was at 10 years old, and I haven't stopped running since. I still actually am a coach and a contributor as a dietitian for Girls in the Run Soulmates, so that's their marathon training fundraising team. And um, still involved with them a lot because it made such a difference in my life as the running became such a crucial part of every part of my life from 10 years onward. So, yeah, running definitely came first. <laughs> and how has your relationship with food been? We had Georgie Fear, who's also a nutritionist on the podcast a few weeks ago. And a big part of what she talked about was her journey with her relationship with food. Has that always been a positive one, a healthy one? or did that trigger your interest in becoming a nutritionist as well? So I had, I would say as I look back, I would categorize it as not a healthy relationship with food or a moderate relationship with my food. I was very blessed to have a mom who cared about me with nutrition and she was very adamant about me fueling right even though she had a little background in nutrition and she cared about whole foods a lot of the times and grew up out in the country so we had a garden and all this stuff and so she was very adamant when I started training in cross country that I needed to fuel right and she kind of laid some rules down that I wasn't allowed to compete unless I ate right. And I know now with my expertise, sometimes that can be hit or miss with certain athletes if we put down those rules for them. For me, it turned out to be a positive thing because I did learn that I needed to fuel right for the actual sport to perform. And so I started off with a good foundation, understanding and relationship with food. But then as I kind of got into marathons, out of college or kind of in college and out of college with marathon training, I actually developed a little bit of an unhealthy relationship with food as I started to associate, oh, I just did a long run. Now I can go eat this many donuts or I just did a long run. I can have this. I burned this many calories. And I would say that internally. Oftentimes I would never say it out loud. Um, But I realized probably about five years ago, uh, I was having this internal dialogue with myself of associating exercise with calories and equating that if I did this, I could eat this. And so that reward system and that tit for tat type of thing, which I now know is just not a healthy relationship with food. Now, on a rest day, I will eat a donut if I want a donut and it's a, you know, a do right donut as you might know in Chicago, you know, I'm going to enjoy that and I'm not going to say, oh, well, I didn't run today, so I don't know if I deserve to have this. So I've developed over time my own healthy relationship with food, but I'd say I have a moderate relationship with my food. Tell us a little bit more about the way you eat now. One thing I experienced when I go to camps like Endeavor Run where where you and I met is that people expect me to be the food police because, you know, I've written about diet as well. And I really don't like that because I'm not, I, I am not sitting around judging what other people eat. Like, unless it's just like bizarre, <laughs> you, you know, but like, I'm just there to have fun and enjoy my own food like everyone else. But I, I, I was able to observe you around food. And to me, you seem to eat the way most healthy, high-level athletes do, where it's like, there's no particular shtick to it. Like you said, you have a donut on a rest day, but it, it, it seems like it's half about the food itself, which is healthy, but not constrained, but it's also half about the relationship. Oh, I care, believe me, I'm a serious athlete, and you can see my results, but also, look, I'm eating a donut. 
Yeah, and that's a great point. And I even had this conversation with a client today about making sure that the enjoyment of food is always there. And that's something that I take personally. Like, if I'm not enjoying my food, then well, we have to eat to live. So though my mindset is I want to enjoy what I'm eating, there's going to be the occasional times where I'm going to take down something that I know is good for me, but I maybe don't like. For me, that's mushrooms. <laughs> I know they're really good for me, but I'm just <laughs> not a huge fan of them. But my mindset has always been like focusing on enjoyment as well as the knowledge. So I have the knowledge of what's important for me as an athlete. I make sure that I'm getting my carbs and my protein and I can look at food and kind of uh, estimate kind of if that's going to be the right uh, fuel for me in that moment. Um, but I don't have a meal plan that I follow strictly. I don't track my nutrition. I rarely ever do tracking devices for myself. And I oftentimes train my clients to eventually get off of that if that is a goal that they want to be sustainable and they want to just learn how to listen to their bodies of how to fuel. And it is very achievable where you can, like you said, Matt, eat really healthy and know that like, you know, okay, for me, it was like, you probably saw, I like had yogurt, granola, and berries in the morning. That's my go-to, because I know how that makes me feel, and that energizes me. It gives me the protein that I know I need in the morning, but I know this stuff after many years of trial and error of what works best for me and where my body is at. So for me, it is not a, I wake up and I know I'm gonna exactly have this for lunch and this. I sometimes am on the, on the fly, but that's obviously comes with lots of time of learning how best to fuel my body. Yeah, we talked with Georgie too about comfort foods and about how like most comfort foods don't actually make you comfortable. <laughs> they don't make you feel great at all. And like I think everyone has had this realization, but I often think about it and kind of just for fun sometimes too. Like when you're in a grocery store, you're like, whoa, I'm an adult. I can choose whatever I want. It, no one's here to stop me. I have money in my pocket to spend on whatever I want and and then flip that framework and make it okay but because I have this power let's make good choices <laughs> that was <laughs> that was just a little tidbit into my head but um <laughs> but I think that's important to bring up because like I think about when I went off to college and it's like I went to a big university yes. and I was like super excited it's like okay I now have like my own money and I can make my own choices. It's not like what my parents are putting in the pantry that I yeah. have to eat. And we can get carried away with that oftentimes. And whenever I have the opportunity to work with adolescent athletes, I love it because I talk to them about how these are skills that you can hone in at a high school level or even a you know middle school level and take off to college and be way ahead of your peers. And it's not only gonna be long-term behavioral habits of how to choose food, why we choose food, how does it make you feel, but it's also going to make you a stronger athlete, a more long-term athlete, because your other teammates might not eat the same way or make the same choices. They might deal with injury, who knows what it might be for them. And so it's oftentimes really cool to see those developments for those younger athletes as they continue on to college. Yeah, because if, if it's not in your house, you probably won't eat it. Exactly. <laughs> and, and when they're that young, they're not the ones making those choices. I wanted to hear a bit about some of the learning opportunities, I guess you could call them, that you that you had as a runner while you were learning more about nutrition. Like, what were some of those big events where you were like, oh, man, shouldn't have done this? <laughs> uh, well, the first one comes to mind, talking about gels that take in. I think I was running, like, 
I think it was my either first or second half marathon, and um, it was in Columbus, Ohio. I had first got started in that realm of half marathons, marathons, by being volunteering at aid stations while I was in college there. And so I was running my first half marathon, and one of the things that came up was that we kind of there was somebody handing out gels, basically, and I was like, oh, that looks interesting, and I was like two years into my nutrition, <laughs> oh, oh, no. and, and, and I was like, oh, maybe I need that. They're saying, like, I need that. Like, I should probably take that. <laughs> and for me, it was a super thick type of gel, and I just, like, remember taking it and being like, instant regret, instant regret, because I didn't have water. I think they were giving it to me after the water or something. I don't even remember. And I took it and I just started gagging in this reflex. And I had to go to the side and like reset myself and just kind of like calm down because my body was just trying to like regurgitate it and everything. And it was just a horrible experience. And so I learned from that experience, you trial things before you go into race day. You do not try something new on race day on the race course. So that's something to definitely take into consideration too. So that was one of the most important type of like learning experiences that I had. And then another one that I had actually was my current marathon PR. I was in Berlin for that in 2017. And I had a great training cycle. I had trained really well with it. And this was like, I was still, I had my business. I was coaching people with nutrition and, and all these things that were kind of coming together. And I ran my PR in Berlin and I was super excited. Um, and I thought I was at the peak of my performance. And come to find out a few months later, I was not necessarily at my peak performance. I might've been hitting numbers, but I was actually really unhealthy. I had lost a lot more weight than I thought I had unintentionally. I was not trying to underfuel at all but I had underfueled by the intensity of training, how much I was, how busy I was with my work and my training. And I had unintentionally underfueled and it started to pop up about three months after that PR for the marathon. And I started having injury after injury and just kind of was a realization that there are certain times of my training that I have to hone in on what I'm taking in because I can't just ad lib it. I can't just go off the um, seat of my pants type of thing. I have to be intentional as my mileage increases, as my intensity increases, and as race day increases. Because I ask a lot of my body, so I need to give it the tools in order to achieve the things I'm asking of it. So that was another really big learning moment for me. And now from that, what I learned to do is as my intensity increases, now I actually do spot check myself and I'll use a tracking app and I'll track my nutritional intake to make sure that I'm hitting where I need to, to make sure that I'm staying at a healthy um, weight as well as a, just a healthy intake for asking what my body I need of it. I unintentionally was under fueling because I was so busy. I'd wake up at 4 a.m., I'd get my runs in, I'd be super busy. I was working probably 70 hour weeks with my business, with side jobs, and training probably 10 to 15 hours a week in addition to that. So I was running around and not fueling enough. And I was like, oh, I feel fine, I'd be good. I'd do my recovery, I'd jump into you know contrast baths and compression boots, and I did everything I thought I was supposed to be doing. And I had great times, that's not a denial that I didn't get faster, but mm -hmm. under, under the surface more was happening that I didn't even realize because I wasn't providing my body enough nutrition to do what I needed it to do long-term, sustainable-wise. Got it. Yeah. Hannah, I think we should yes. tee up a listener question. We gathered a few through social media. We we've did. Been hog we've been hogging the mic. We've got a whole community who's got <laughs> pressing questions for Lydia. Yeah, they're good ones too. Okay, let's go with 
Fueling for a hot and humid race day. Are there key electrolytes that an athlete should focus on? Yes. So first off, because as Matt knows, I'm all about education first and then what you should do. Electrolytes for listeners are going to be sodium, potassium, magnesium, chloride, and calcium. So the last two oftentimes people don't even realize are electrolytes because we lose them in such small amounts, but they're still important. So for hot, humid days, really you should focus on all five of those, but really the top three, which were the sodium, potassium, and magnesium. We oftentimes focus in on sodium and we're like, yeah, we know we need that. But many athletes oftentimes will turn a blind eye to the potassium, to the magnesium, and those become super important, especially for female athletes. More and more research is showing that magnesium plays such a larger role as an electrolyte for female athletes and just for in general athletes too, but female athletes specifically. So that's something that if you, it's hot and humid, like it is really hot and humid here in Chicago. You know, what I do preemptively for hot and humid race days is you need to do two to three days before that actual race and you need to just be pounding the fluids. You need to be taking in almost double what you would typically take in and double the amount of electrolytes that you would typically take in. So for me, I know I take in at least 90 to 100 fluid ounces of water with about half of that being electrolyte supplement a day leading into like an intense kind of race day or a long run that's going to be hot and humid and maybe there's an up-tempo or if it's just a regular hot and humid time frame. Got it. I have a question to bounce off of that one because I didn't know if this was a myth or not. So bust this myth, Lydia. Preemptive hydration before race day or like a hot and humid long workout day whatever it is that actually is important like that that actually stacks in your body and has like a reservoir there for you when you need it in the next few days yes it does so kind of different than carb loading (laughs) i kind of always use this example of like we always hear about carb loading you need to carb load and do all this stuff well it's actually more the pasta parties yes exactly the pasta dinners (laughs) i think i had so many of those in high school but focusing in on those electrolytes two to three days beforehand and just fluids in general become so important so if you know you have an important race day or an important run coming up the last thing you want to do is be doing dehydrating things like drinking a lot of coffee or drinking a lot of alcohol because those things are going to be more detrimental. Whereas if you drink a lot of just fluids and then also with electrolytes, it's going to kind of preload you basically for the actual race or important run. Got it. Right Should on. I do another listener question, Matt? No. Okay. <laughs> Matt's like, let me back on the mic, please. Well, yeah, I have have a question I've been dying to to ask Lydia. In the work that you do one-on-one with athletes, trying to help them up their game with nutrition, a a lot of it is providing information, you know, just like busting myths or just telling them what they need to know. But I think another part of it is actually modeling behavior. And so that's why I think that the type of sharing you're doing in this forum is very valuable where you talk about what you eat or the lessons you've learned the hard way because people people can look at you and say, oh, well, she's doing great overall, a few bumps on the road, and she has this education and knowledge. So if she's doing that, not everyone wants to look up studies. You know, if they they can just see a person they look up to, a a kind of role model doing it, that will get them to do it. 
But on the other hand, there might be a downside to that. And actually, I know this because you and I did this little workshop activity at the Endeavor Run Camp where we did some interpersonal sharing. But the idea of that modeling behavior, you know, the flip side is that you can feel a certain pressure, right, to like, who's going to take my nutrition advice seriously if I don't finish my next race or if I'm injured all the time or whatever. So can you speak to that modeling aspect, positive and negative to the work you do? Yeah. So I think I always like to end on a positive and start with positive, but I know there's, you said the positive and negative. I think the negative is like what you said is sometimes you feel the pressure of feeling like you have to be this hundred percent perfect role model all the time. And everything I do is under a microscope. And I think when I first started into this field, I definitely felt that weight. And I felt like I was starting my business. I was trying to network in Chicago to build up a business. I felt the pressure of I have to get everything right. Um, And so when in 2017, when I'd already kind of been doing this for a while, I had been learning how to be a better athlete. I was getting faster. I was making a better name for myself in Chicago to kind of fail like I know it was a good fail that I had to do at some point in my life but to fail and start having injury after injury I felt like man my role model status is gone like people aren't going to respect me because I underfueled and you know I tell people they need to fuel how are they ever going to listen to me and to take a step back from that and just mentally heal too both physically and mentally I had to heal to be like the people who really are going to take something away and actually listen to me are going to still listen to me. It's not going to be a make or break for them because they see now that I'm human and that even I make mistakes and that I get caught up in the craziness of life. But the thing that is different than me for me than other people oftentimes is that I take that step back. If my body says I need to take a step back because it's it's hurting, it's injured, I'm going to most likely take that step back because I want long-term sustainability. For me, my my ultimate goal is I want to still be running marathons when I'm 90 years old. So if I don't do what I need to do now in terms of taking care of my body, this body's not going to let me do it when I'm 90. So I think that's like one of the pressures oftentimes of modeling it. The positive is though, that's actually why I got into this field. I had a professor in my senior year um, of undergrad who really actually changed my trajectory of life because going into my senior year, I was still human nutrition dietetics in undergrad. And so I was going to graduate with that. It was going to be my major, but I had no intention on going on and becoming a dietitian. I actually was going to be housing, work on student life, work on university campuses and help with residence life because I loved that. And that was something I did for three years. Then I had this one professor who changed the entire trajectory of my life, basically, where she was so adamant about we as dietitians and nutritionists should be never recommending something that we aren't trying ourselves. And I just something about that really spoke to me because I said, wow, yeah, like, I would listen to somebody if they told me, I've done this before, I've tried this before, and yes, it's anecdotal, but they're not telling me to try this protein powder that they've never tried and it tastes disgusting, and they're giving me their their real honest feedback. I can trust this person. And so that kind of spoke to me and has stuck with me, and I tell my patients and my clients that all the time. Like, I when I recommend something, I say, I've tried this myself. I've either cooked this recipe myself or I've tried this product before. It tastes pretty good. Here's kind of the taste profile that I'll tell you. And people are respect me a lot more for that because I'm not going to tell them to go do something that I'm not willing to do myself or haven't done myself. Dang. 
Mic drop. Yeah, that was. <laughs> okay, so on that token, I have an interesting question for you. What do you think about all of these, what I eat in a day as a personal trainer, what I eat in a day as a runner, running 60 miles a week, short little videos, TikTok stuff, all, all of that. What do you think about those? I think it is good and bad. I think it's great because there's a lot of, especially younger athletes that need a visual guidance of how they should be fueling to really have that reference point. But I also think those same individuals who are doing how to fuel in a day should also be putting that caveat, which many of the ones I've seen, and granted my vision on social media is very cultivated to a certain Mm -hmm. population, but the ones I've seen who post things like that are always very much like asterisk, this is for me, this is for my life, this is for my activity level, this is for my age, height, weight, all of those things and my life experiences and my goals. So this is not exactly what you should be doing, but this is a good idea of how to start, like a good starting point for a lot of people. Yeah. So I think it's a, it's good to for those things to be out there, but they need to be viewed through a lens of, this is a guidance, not a like testament, like a thing you have to follow, yeah. so. Everything with a grain of salt. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation with a friend about it, and I didn't realize, because I enjoy them to find quick new recipes or what are other people eating. I'm just, like, curious about what other other people do. And she was like, no, I I don't really think that they're great. I don't think we should be, like, me as a personal trainer or group fitness instructor or whatever, someone in the fitness world, um, like, I shouldn't be preaching what to eat. And, like, to your point, though, like, that's not a nutritionist. <laughs> you right. know, that's someone who doesn't have the background in that, but just an interesting conversation I had with someone, so good to hear your feedback. Okay, on to a list, or on to an athlete question, Matt, shall we? Yes. Okay. Recent reports say protein powder is overrated. Thoughts? Um, It's a great question. Are overrated? I don't want to see what these reports are, where they're coming from, why they're overrated. Recent reports in quotes. So as as Matt knows, my catchphrase from Endeavor Run, it depends. So protein powder is definitely overrated in a lot of areas. I wouldn't say like running nutrition, it's exaggerated or um, overused, or even in the endurance world in general. But I'd say in some populations it can be. I think for a lot of people, the reason that it's overhyped as a thing is because people want quick fixes. They don't want to have to cook chicken or cook beans or cook whatever the protein source they're going to have because that takes more time than opening up a canister, putting protein powder in a smoothie or in a shaker and walking out the door. So our population really often wants a quick fix, honestly, and so that's why it's overhyped. That's why everyone goes into using protein powder. Now, there's certain populations that I do think protein powder can be really beneficial for. The key, too, are oftentimes individuals that are more plant-based. If they're struggling to get that protein in, that can be a great tool. It is not a necessity for them, but it is something that if they're struggling to understand, oftentimes when I work with plant-based endurance athlete, I might start them off with some protein powder with the intention of eventually weaning them off of it as dependency and using it as a just-in-case tool, because I'm all about having different tools in your tool belt to pull out whenever you need. Protein powder, in my opinion, is a great tool that we have access to, but 
I pull out protein powder probably like two times a month. And it's usually I'm throwing it into a smoothie because I'm running out the door because I didn't time manage my, I didn't manage my time really well. Or it's, I'm gonna finish a long run and I'm gonna be you know on the lakefront path, which is for farther away from my home. And I'm not gonna get home within 30 to 45 minutes after I'm done finishing my long run. So I'm gonna take protein powder with me because I know I need to take in protein within 30 minutes of finishing that workout. So I utilize it as a tool when I absolutely need it but it's not a necessity that I lean on all the time. I think oftentimes athletes will lean on it as a crutch and that's where it can get a bad name basically. I found that answer very persuasive. <laughs> um, <laughs> why should anyone listen to you? I know that's like a super blunt question, but there's so much information out there about diet and nutrition and it's a lot of it is contradictory and it's a big problem. Like not everyone has an RD, right? Uh, and, and so if you can't be an expert, you at least need to know who is a legitimate expert and who's, and who's a quack. But there, there's kind of an art to that, right? You see people choosing bad sources. And there's a difference between like how some people, they, they find it persuasive if you don't have a bunch of credentials and you shout. <laughs> Others find it more persuasive if you're very dispassionate and you cite a lot of studies. But it's a challenge for anyone in your roles, getting people to just believe that you're credible. What's your advice to people? Because you're not the last nutrition expert that listeners are going to hear from in their lives. <laughs> How do you separate the wheat from the chaff? When I was in graduate school, that was one of the number one things one of my professors said was, we have to be louder than the noise. We're going into, I was going into a new era after grad school where people who didn't have credentials were yelling louder on social media and in the news and all these things of what to do. And really she said like, we have to be more comfortable on social media. We have to get over our imposter syndrome that a lot of dietitians struggle with, myself included, of being louder on uh, social media and in these different channels about nutrition because we have to be louder than the noise. And I think the reason that when people are listening to what I have to say, oftentimes what I hope that they don't only look at the credentials, and we kind of talked about this at Endeavor Run too, of, for me, it's not the credentials at the end of my name. Like I think those help me get in, get through the door oftentimes with different teams or different areas and I have that opportunity given to me because of those credentials. But most people don't care about credentials when they're interviewing me to be their dietitian. They don't care about that. They care about how real I am with them. They care about if I'm actually gonna get them to their goals. And that's the thing, people care about that and they want their authenticity. And I think I provide that. I would say if I had another like, if I changed my Instagram handle, I'd be like the authentic dietitian because that's what people around Chicago especially call me. They're like, I know that I can trust you. If you tell me to go try something, I'm gonna go do it without any hesitation because I know you're telling me to do something that's right. Not because I have an RD at the end of my name or have my own masters, but because I've tried it and I'm never going to tell someone to do something that, like I said before, I'm not willing to do myself. She's honest, honest Abe, honest yes. Lydia. Authentic. <laughs> Love that. Georgie had a similar answer too in her own in her own way, but it's it's just interesting how both of you have a similar outlook on that. Um, I'm gonna go for another listener question here. Avoiding gluten and milk. What is your opinion? I thought that was just the question. I was like, is that a question? <laughs> is that a question? <laughs> Avoiding gluten and milk. Um, 
So a lot of endurance athletes, that is actually something that could be very beneficial for them. We're finding more and more that as endurance athletes, we put so much stress on our bodies and specifically on our gut that being gluten-free by choice as well as being lactose-free can actually decrease a lot of the inflammation that endurance athletes might experience or that GI distress that they experience either during their exercises or after their exercises. So it can be super beneficial. I found many of my clients will go gluten-free and feel a lot better. Now, does that mean that they have to be gluten-free all the time? Not at all. Actually, oftentimes we work within their food choices and maybe we'll just say like, hey, you have a really important run or um, exercise coming up. Let's make sure that you're kind of gluten-free or lactose-free leading into that. And then you can go enjoy your pizza that has the cheese and the gluten and all that after the fact. But if you really have these goals of getting faster or getting stronger, we have to prioritize certain workouts and your food needs to make sure it supports that. So it can be super beneficial. One of the things that, you know, kind of going back a little bit to Matt's question from before, a lot of people will yell loud about, you should be gluten-free, you should be dairy-free, because I did it and I had these great results. And that's oftentimes the people who are loudest on social media and they, runners always have an opinion on what you should do nutritionally. You go to like a new running group and you're like, I'm a new marathoner. And you like, I've done this like as a test sometimes if I've gone to a new running group. You're like, I'm running this marathon. Like, do you guys have any suggestions? Every single person has a different thing that you should do. You should cut out gluten. You should go plant-based. You should do this. And everybody has their own opinion because for them it's anecdotal. And I think that's the important thing to understand is that going gluten or dairy-free is completely antidotal for most people as well as there is some research. But you have to make sure that the research is down the road of who like who you are so does it match like do the results match the same population that is represents you as well as just listening to your body and knowing what feels right with when you do cut out gluten do you feel like you have more energy do you have better you know bowel movements do you like all these different things that play into it you have to really be able to be in tune with your body to make those choices I'm going to ask another question. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> this is your show. I'm, going... <laughs> I'm just hanging out. <laughs> you are Robin in today's episode. Okay, so I am a sucker for oat milk, and I, I could drink regular milk. It doesn't really affect me, but it is just so dang creamy and tasty. And But some of it has all these oils in it, and it's just not that great for you. So what, where, where do we draw the line here? If I can have normal cow's milk and be fine, but oat milk is delicious and <laughs> maybe it's not the best, like where, just give me some advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'd say is that oftentimes it's delicious because of oftentimes many of the things they're adding to it. So that's where you have to kind of draw yeah. that line of like, okay, if I'm having this every single day, is it one of those things where I'm having it every single day and I'm getting this additive basically in my diet all the time comparative to that could be causing just as much inflammation as say lactose for some an individual so it, mm. it is that balance of you know when you turn in uh, a food item around and it has a nutrition facts label you should be able to one ideally be able to pronounce everything that's on that ingredient list, as well as kind of look at it and make sure the top five ingredients are all things that you can pronounce, that you feel comfortable with. Um, 
because if there are like some of those oils that oftentimes are being used more and more, used to be coconut oil, and then the New York Times article talking about oh, coconut oil is poison, and now it's I think it's palm oil is being used a lot now because we just mm -hmm. keep shifting to di different type of oils until a new research study comes out and says, oh, it's it's bad for you because we use it so much. We go from zero to sixty with all these different products. But I would say that yeah, definitely if it's if you feel better drinking oat milk, then just try to get the most orga organic, natural, like straight oat milk without a ton of additives. Get unsweetened, get all those things. And if you still like it then, then that's totally fine. Okay, thank you, Lydia. I'm validating your oat milk choice. <laughs> thank you. Thank Dietitian you so approved much. stamp. <laughs> So Lydia, I've seen you field or heard you field a, a number of questions, not just in the, the present interview, but at the Endeavor Run Camp. And I've never seen you, heard you yet even close to being stumped by, by a question. Like you just seem like very, very current and even something. There were a couple of times actually at an Endeavor Run where I'm like, what's this person talking about? And you always knew what they were talking about. It's important. It's, a, it's another big part of your job, I would think, is like to not fall behind because there's always so much going on. A new trend that's like big in CrossFit may have no penetration in all, like endurance sports. How are you going to know about it? So how, how do you keep current both on the scientific side and just like knowing what people are doing at home? Yeah, well, I'm glad I give that perception because I honestly feel like I don't do a great job of staying on top of what's going on in the world when it comes to the new trends of nutrition. I hate to admit this actually, but I use social media oftentimes to direct me in the right direction because who I see on social media are all cultivated individuals who I trust, who are putting out like, these are the things you should do and maybe it's something new I haven't seen and so I'll go and look at the research study that they linked to it so then I get to the research oftentimes. Um, but honestly, I actually, that's something I made a goal for myself is to start looking more into the different research things. For me, my newest uh, passion over the past year and a half has been looking into female athletes and how their nutrition just looks very different due to hormones. And that's mainly because a lot of the newer research out there is based off of that, is looking into that. I really do try to stay up to date using social media as a starting point and then jumping off of that into research studies that are also linked and posted. And if I ever on social media post about like something super specific or maybe it's controversial, I'll even link the research study that I referenced to in there just so other people can read it. Because that's also what I'm big on is if you like question me or you think that it's not right, I encourage you to go look it up. Go read it for yourself. See if it does fit into who you are and what you want to accomplish because Everything I put out there is not going to fit every single goal that's out there. I have to be pointed. That's what nutrition is. It's individual. So I do try to provide all the resources I can. And I oftentimes will welcome someone being like, ah, don't, why are you saying that? Like, I think last year I did a post on how Gatorade's not the devil. Sports drinks are not the worst thing in the world. And I got a lot of traction on social media as well as a lot, attacked <laughs> a lot. And like, you must get paid by them and all this stuff. I was like, actually I don't get paid by them. I don't even like get anything from them. I'm just trying to put a message out there so that way people feel like they're not in the wrong because 
if they feel like Gatorade, they shouldn't be having it, then they might not get any electrolytes. And that's actually more dangerous for an individual because maybe they don't have access to certain foods and certain supplements that most populations would have access to. Whereas Gatorade's super easy to get someplace and it actually gives them the sodium that they need to help rehydrate. So just little things like that oftentimes I've found. Preach. Interesting. Yes, I love it. <laughs> Lydia, I think you read my mind because my next question was going to be around nutrition and endurance athletes for females regarding their cycle. Is there anything that you found research-wise and in practice that you think our female listeners could benefit from? Yeah, well... Me, me included. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say, like, a lot of my inspiration and where I get a lot of my research from and look from is from Dr. Stacy Sims. She's actually, like, on the ground doing research in this area, and she lives and breathes it, too. Once again, a very authentic type of scientist who is an expert in this area. She's practiced what she preaches, so that resonated a lot with me. But what I've learned from her and the direction from her too to other research studies that she's found have been that female athletes actually need a lot more protein no matter when their cycle is to just help with the constant breakdown of uh, muscle mass. And so we have to preserve what we have because the higher amounts of estrogen that we have can be very catabolic. So we have to consume a lot more protein. That's why I make sure every single meal and snack I have has some form of protein. My other catchphrase, I think I have a lot. I need to make, make a book of catchphrases of Lydia, <laughs> but it's pair your protein. So pair your protein, make sure there's always a protein source there because that can be really beneficial for female endurance athletes. The other thing is the electrolytes. So magnesium being super important, not just for only hydration, and replenishing those fluids, but also for anti-inflammatory. As females, when we go through our menstrual cycles, it's inflammation. Like if we dumb it down, it's inflammation that's going on in our bodies. And so we know that things like omega-3 fatty acids, magnesium, zinc, are all nutrients that actually decrease inflammation. So female athletes should be consuming those things three to four days before their menstrual cycle and throughout their menstrual cycle And one of the biggest things that I've personally seen, my clients have seen, is when they increase, whether it be through supplement form or it be through actual foods, they actually see that their menstrual cycle time or period time can actually be a time where they're actually their strongest as an athlete. Because oftentimes females think, oh man, I'm just like gonna be slow and it's like, I'm just gonna be trudging along. It's just gonna be a horrible time frame." When in reality, if we actually look at the data, it could be the strongest time for a female athlete. And so if we utilize the food and the nutrition that we know, such as the magnesium, omega-3s, and zinc, you can actually be the strongest that you possibly could be. Really interesting. You don't mention iron, which I know a lot of female endurance athletes struggle with, um, myself included. So oftentimes, and there's a reason I actually don't, because I feel like a lot of people say, yeah, take iron, take iron. And, mm. you know, taking iron supplements is a very tricky business, too. It's not yeah. something that you should just like, oh, yeah, you you feel kind of fatigued. Maybe you should just start taking iron. No, you should yeah. probably go get a blood test first. See if your iron's actually low or your ferritin's low. And then maybe then take a supplement. Or I would say first, look at your diet and see if there's things you're not consuming mm-hmm. that could provide you with iron. It doesn't have to just come from meat. It can come from 
vegetables and it doesn't have to just be spinach either. I think everyone just thinks, oh, just eat a bunch of spinach and you'll be fine. I even have some patients and clients that I say, just cook in an iron skillet. That's one of like the easiest things. Mm. And that's actually something my mom taught me when I was younger is she just cooked everything in an iron skillet. And so I never had anemia or had low iron because almost all our meals were cooked from breakfast to dinner were all cooked in an iron skillet oftentimes. So it can be a great addition, but you have to do a lot more background research on if it's needed before you can just start take, popping those pills. Hannah, I have a, a super deep closing question for Lydia, but before I get my chance to do that, you got to do the intro. I get the super deep closer. But I was gonna ask one. I was gonna ask one more listener question. That's exactly what I was gonna say. Yeah. Before, oh wow. Before I gotta wait in the wings while we yeah have Lydia. We try to stump her one last time. I know. I'm waiting for it. I'm like <laughs> Matt. Look at our co-host synergy building right yep. now. Um, yep. Okay. What is your go-to breakfast before a big race day? And part two. How early should you start fueling before? race day okay so the first one for me so once again caveat this is personal this is i've practiced this (laughs) like that's the underlying there's two actually that i use if it's a this is might sound weird but if it's a domestic race it's oftentimes oatmeal with maybe some berries or an apple on top not a huge bowl of oatmeal oftentimes and maybe i'll throw like cinnamon in there or something like that so that's usually my go-to um for pre-race because i wake up so much earlier for races just because of I have race day anxiety. I think a lot of people do. So I wake up super early and can take in that nutrition. If it's international, I actually will do like Kodiak cakes in the little, the the flapjack cups because I can take that in my luggage and just add water and you can find water and usually a microwave or a kettle in most places internationally. So that's usually what my go-to is when I'm overseas. Wait, where do you find the griddle? Like the- To make them. Oh, no, no, it's not a griddle. It's just in a cup and you add water and you either put it in the microwave for 60 seconds or you have like hot water and it will (laughs) cook it. Whoa. Okay. They also have like oatmeal and I've done that one as well overseas because it's easy. I try to think about stuff you can like take easily overseas. Another one I've done is like take peanut butter packets because unfortunately overseas there's not always peanut butter available. (laughs) I've found that out the hard way. (laughs) Peanut butter and then like a piece of bread. I'll literally have like a Ziploc bag of a couple pieces of bread that I go through like my carry on and people are like, what's why she got this? But so those are my go-tos for pre-race oftentimes. Um, Got it. How long beforehand? Once again, this is how long you've practiced, how much fiber your body can handle, things of that nature. But I would recommend typically before race day, eating your breakfast at least two hours before that actual start of the the race. So obviously you're gonna have a little bit of a warm up probably, so it doesn't have to be two hours before this warm up, but before the start of the race. If you know that it takes you a lot longer to digest food, which comes with practice and understanding, then I would recommend at least three hours before. Set those alarms, people. Wake up early. <laughs> if you're doing the Chicago Marathon, you got to wake up real early because it starts at like 7 a.m. So you have to get down there by like 6 a.m. almost. So yeah, no, it's waking up real early. Can you can you eat and then go back to sleep or is yep. that a no-no? Nope, you absolutely can do that. Oftentimes, many mm. people will do that. I would recommend you wait about 20 minutes so you're not like eating and then laying down. But yeah. so you want it to like get through your esophagus and hopefully your stomach before you just go lay down. But yeah, you can absolutely do that. Okay. 
<laughs> it's, your, it's your time, Matt. Take it away. <laughs> no, I, I was wrapped. You had my full attention. I, I enjoyed every word of that answer. But I was also eager to a- ask my uh, super deep closing question. Lydia, I, I view you as someone who's on a trajectory. I feel like you're going places. Like, I mean, what you're doing now is, is fantastic. But I, I have a feeling that what you're doing like 10 years from now will look different in, in certain ways. So I'm curious to know like, if you have a vision for that. I hesitate to use the word dream. But do you have a vision for where you want to go professionally? So I kind of have like a little bit of a foggy dream, I would say, or a foggy notion of what 10 years down the road would look like. But I will say, Matt, like you were a huge inspiration at Endeavoron and the words you said to me at the end of Endeavoron. After that whole experience, I do think that I have a clear vision of where I could be in five to 10 years. Maybe it's it's writing books, which I actually even thought about years ago. I have it written down on like a New Year's resolution, write a book. I have all these great ideas and I think I can communicate them really well in person just have to get them on paper oftentimes. So that's the, the hardest part for me. I also foresee myself just like this, being an expert in the field of nutrition, being an authentic dietitian who is able to speak to lots of individuals and be able to help train both your everyday weekend warrior types of athletes all the way to the professional level. So I think that I'll probably in five to 10 years still be doing the private practice kind of realm with maybe maybe dipping my toe in a little bit of teaching. I did teach as an adjunct professor for one, one semester and I absolutely loved it. I, I really, my heart does love working with college students. So I think at some point I'll probably do a little bit of teaching at the college level. Right on. I can almost guarantee that all of that actually will happen. Like, it, I mean, it might, it might be foggy, but it's not like, oh, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to be living on Jupiter in 10 years. Like, like I think, yeah, I think that was pretty clear. Yeah, that's all going to happen. I would have called that foggy. It's funny because it's like it's like where where will those things happen? I think that's the foggy part for me. I think that yeah. I know those things will happen. It's just like where, what college would I be teaching at or, right. you know, like those yep. sorts of, that's the foggy part. But you, yeah, so that's kind of what I see happening in the next five years, actually, I'd say more than 10 years. Okay, well, we'll check back in five to 10 years. Got it? Perfect. I'll put it <laughs> on my calendar. <laughs> yes, I'll send you an invite when we hang up. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Lydia. Again, like I feel like I use this episode as an opportunity to learn a lot for myself, but I hope our listeners got some out of it as well. And thank you for answering their questions. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. And the listeners had great questions. You guys had great questions. And like I said, I love being just like authentic and genuine because this is who I am. And I love doing this because it honestly energizes me talking about this stuff because I know it does make a difference in not only people's performance in their sport, but in their lives too. So that's what really motivates me to keep showing up every day. Cool. And um, let's go on a run soon together, okay? Before the weather turns. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I'll meet you on the lakefront path. (laughs) Perfect. Hoping you had a laugh or learned a thing or two or even better, both of those things while listening to this episode. If you want to reach out to Lydia or learn more about her, we'll link her information in the show notes. So be sure to do that. And we'll chat with you guys next week on the podcast. See ya.